Hi there. How's it going? Welcome to the Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. So I think you're really going to enjoy the podcast today. We have a conversation with Dr. Kieran Setia, who's a philosophy professor at MIT. You might recognize the name, though I think I mispronounced it, because in the previous episode, we talked about his book called Midlife, about a kind of a very personalized look at what philosophy can bring to all the existential questions that midlife brings. And um, again, popular book in my circle, so by all means, listen to that. So in this conversation, we're going to talk a bit about that. We're going to talk about our respective disciplines, like how does philosophy work with contemplative spirituality, you know, Christianity, all the sorts of stuff I've given my life to and that we talk about on this podcast. Is there overlap? Is there difference? How do, how do we think about that? Um, we look at how those things also come to bear on some of the questions that the Midlife book raises. Impending death, how do you think about that? Obviously, if you're from the Christian tradition, there's ways you're taught to think about that. From the philosophical uh, sphere, there's other ways to think about that. We talk about how those things interact. Um, we just talk about what is philosophy trying to do. I'm, I'm just interested in that stuff, so that comes up as well. Anyway, I love the conversation, and I think you will too. Uh, if you are interested in learning more about the sort of stuff we do here at the Pocket Contemplative, a couple of places you can find out about that. One is just there's the podcast page itself, thepocketcontemplative.com, or there's a website called journey-on.net, journey-on.net, where the bigger picture gets talked about. We have these online groups with people from all over the country and a bit beyond the country where we talk about the sorts of stuff here weekly with people. And then in our tradition, we also sometimes pray among each other and get into small groups and things like that, like a virtual group to talk about such matters. Uh, so you can find out about that and about the bigger picture at journey-on.net. All right, here we go with our delightful conversation with Kieran Setia. Well, we're here with Kieran Setia, and uh, I was just saying beforehand how much, at least in the Smelser family, we've loved his books. And so that when my wife Grace heard that we were going to be talking, she asked me to like to thank him for the midlife book and how great it was. She was excited here where this conversation went. So, Kieran, thanks so much for joining us. It's going to be fun to chat. Uh, thank you for having me, and uh, yeah, I appreciate it. So, I, as I was thinking about where we could start this conversation, I found myself thinking of a broad question. So, having read both of your books now, at least the ones I'm aware, of, I shouldn't say there may be many more, but the two I know of are the midlife book and Life Is Hard. One thing that's wonderful about them is they're taking this deep philosophical tradition and applying them to practical questions. That's one of the reasons uh, my wife said, hey, thank you. That was so great. But that makes me want to ask a broader question, which is you're a philosopher. What's the gig? What What is philosophy trying to accomplish? What's it trying to do? So that is a big question. And my favorite way of trying to answer it when I'm say, introducing students to philosophy is historical, to say in Western philosophy, it's sort of the origins. Philosophy encompasses all systematic inquiry into the nature of reality, what we know, how we should live. And then over the course of 2,000 years and more, individual disciplines sort of carve off. So you get physics and biology, and then you get uh, psychology, economics, and then computer science and linguistics, and they all form their own separate disciplines with their own distinctive methodologies and established results. And what philosophy is now in the, the sort of surviving Western tradition is in a way uh, the detritus of inquiry. It's like the questions that haven't found their own established methods in other disciplines, but still seem incredibly urgent. And the questions that have survived and have this sort of great longevity 
are often very simple ones. So Kant, uh, Immanuel Kant, this 18th century philosopher says, you know, the, the big questions are, what can I know? What should I do? And what may I hope? And I think those questions are still a good way to think about the subject matter of philosophy. And so what I do, I work on ethics primarily. So I'm interested in what may I hope, but especially on what should I do or how should I live? And I suppose the place where I've come from in my more public facing work is that while philosophy in the academy and sort of the kind of work that professors of philosophy do can be technical, it can be uh, hard to read and accessible. Actually, there's a lot in contemporary philosophy and contemporary moral philosophy working on questions about how to live that is incredibly useful and applicable. And what I've tried to do is sort of build that bridge, build a bridge between what academic philosophy is like and the kind of questions that I found myself asking with friends when I was asking how to live, like, should I have kids or not? Or how am I going to deal with my aging parents? Or should I quit my job? And I think those are questions that very practical day-to-day questions that philosophy can shed light on. So talk to me about how philosophy relates to something which I'm sure is the uh, I, the, the poor stepchild of it, which is self-help. You know, so is there a distinction? Is self-help just bad philosophy or popular philosophy or great philosophy or applied philosophy? What's the difference? I think it's it's uh, complicated in part because self-help could mean something quite exalted and it could mean something quite, uh, uh, something less exalted, shall we say. So like, I think if, if by self-help we mean applying uh, reflective tools in figuring out how to live better lives, then I think that is extremely continuous with philosophical ethics. And indeed, with the tradition of Western philosophy going back to Socrates, who says, you know, stop worrying about whether the world is made of water and start asking the question, how should we live? You know, that that kind of urgent question is, is definitive of a certain part of the Western philosophical tradition. I think what I would want to distance philosophy from are certain tendencies in contemporary self-help but not in all of it. But sometimes I think it tends to focus less on living well, kind of living as we should, living in ways that are meaningful and good, and more on individual happiness or contentment. Uh, and those are not the same. And I think if you're just worried about individual happiness, you've got a fairly selfish kind of focus. And a lot of self-help, I think, tends to have that. And the other is a, a desire for quick tips. The idea that the self-help book should provide you with five clues to overcoming grief. I think philosophy might be able to provide specific guidance at times, but the starting point is often a deeper understanding of what's going on and how it fits into a meaningful human life. And so there's a kind of patience that philosophy calls for that is sometimes antithetical to what people want out of self-help. Let's talk about that patience. Let's talk, maybe this will go to the living well versus being happy distinction, which I know you talk about in the Life is Hard book. Um, Yeah. So um, this is, I'm not trying to frame this question. Um, As someone who's given a lot of advice, who's been a preacher and things like that, I'm going to ask a very pessimistic question to the advice giving profession of any (laughs) sort. Does any advice help? You know, so self-help, as you point out, there could be five tips to do whatever. I've read a lot of self-help because back in my preaching days in particular, always looking for ways to make whatever you're saying about theology and the Bible practical. And so how can you, how can you anchor it? And it's so helpful for that. On the other hand, as we age, you could argue that just our lives go as they go. Do we get wiser? Is it possible to get wiser? Does, you know, so 
I don't know, talk me off the ledge. Does any of this help? I, <laughs> I, I hope so. I do think there are maybe one way to think about that question is to think about the obstacles, which I think there really are. So one kind of obstacle that I think philosophy especially runs into, I, I'm, I'm interested in how this relates to being a preacher, for instance. Right. There's a kind of tendency for philosophers to be abstract and theoretical and to come up with arguments. And I, I am somewhat pessimistic of the power of abstract theory or detailed argument to be useful. And so I, I think often what philosophy contributes that really is more applicable is less, I've got this complicated argument for something, or I've got this very intricate theory. It's more, I can describe a phenomenon in a way that captures the contours that will help you figure out how to feel about it and how to think about it. And that might be you know, the midlife crisis, I wrote a book about that, or it might be grief, or it might be dealing with chronic pain or loneliness. And I think that kind of descriptive element, just saying what is actually going on here, can we analyze it and make sense of it, is very orienting. So I, I think that is a way to think about what philosophy can contribute. And I think that probably is continuous with a lot of what happens in other kinds of successful advice giving, which is thick description. Like, I'm going to try to describe what you're experiencing, and you think, oh, man, you've got it. That makes sense. I, I, I get it now. I think that the two obstacles that, that still remain that I think are quite hard are there's one thing to intellectually grasp something in your life. It's another thing for the emotional responses to follow. That's often a further step that is, is hard for reading a book, for instance, to accomplish. And the other is that it, it's very personal. So, uh, you know, I'm often describing in my work my own problems. And that's because I'm the example that I have in front of me. It's not that I think my problems are universal or the most important problems. If I could, as it were, take you and describe your problems, I wish I could. But I, I hope that what happens sometimes is that there's a kind of vi vicarious uh, um, learning in which watching someone else work through their problems allows a reader or a listener to think, okay, I agree with this, I disagree with that, but I see what he's doing. And now I'll do that with my own life. And so I, I, th I think the pedagogical side of doing philosophy in a way that's helpful, that, that, giving advice that can be helpful, often involves inviting the other person to reflect themselves rather than just saying, here's how it is, do what I said. And my mind drifts to your setting. So you're at MIT. I was in Cambridge for quite a few years. I knew a fair amount of MIT people. I, was a, I mentioned to you that I was a chaplain for a couple of years at Caltech, at least a sister school at MIT. And I could, I mean, I'm trying to think of a philosophy program, a philosophy class at a place like that. And what I was, what I was mentioning to you is that my experience at Caltech was back in the day, the misery quotient of the students I was working with was <laughs> higher than I'd experienced in other settings in my own undergraduate days and things like that. And so I could think, do people flock to your classes thinking, oh my God, tell me how this is going to be okay. Tell me how this is going to work out in, in that setting. I don't know about flock, but it's true that there's there's this moment I've had several times at MIT where I have to remind myself, oh, they're actually taking this seriously. So that you know, you might think the engineering students wouldn't be interested in philosophy. Actually, we get a lot of students in philosophy classes. They're really engaged, and I, I remember more than one occasion where a student came up after class and said, "Okay, but like, I actually need to figure out whether it's more important to pursue happiness or try to do good in the world." And they were urgently grappling with a question that we had been discussing theoretically from the philosophical tradition in class. And so uh, it's certainly a, a teaching there has certainly given me uh, um, both a sense of the 
need and also a little bit of imposter syndrome about trying to connect philosophy with the actual practical problems that people face. And I, you know, this has become a cliche now, but it's really true that I think the current generation of uh, college students are looking at an extraordinarily uncertain future uh, and the frightening future in many ways. And so I think they really are looking for guidance in how to live their lives. As someone who's given a lot of advice over the years, uh, one thing I can struggle with, which I wonder if you struggle with, is so is my role to be kind of the guru. You know, I've got the answers. I know how to live life. I'm Mr. Wisdom. You know, you come and learn from me. How do you struggle? How do you deal with that, especially with young people that you're the counselor now? <laughs> I think it's it, that is definitely something I challenge with. Uh, sorry, I, that is definitely something I struggle with. It's uh, I don't feel like I've got my own life figured out in a way that would enable me to comfortably inhabit the role of guru. I suppose the response is to use the problem against itself to some extent, to, as it were, put on display my own struggles, to be open about the fact that there are things that I don't really understand and I'm trying to figure out. But it, I think it does connect to the thing we were talking about earlier, about the vicariousness or kind of pedagogy, that I think of myself as not imparting wisdom that I, where I've got things figured out. I, mean, I have some things I'm like, I think this really makes sense. I'm going to share it with you. But a lot of the time, I feel like what I want people, students or readers to take away is, is what I, as I said before, I see the way of thinking here and I see how it could be useful and I'll take what's helpful to me and I'll try to rethink my life in ways that that are more personal, that that may be different from what Kieran is telling me. And so I think there's a kind of skill of reflection that can be conveyed, even if I'm not in a position to give the, you know, three rules for living a better life. Let's, let's go back to the thing that we keep hinting at talking about, but is your distinction between living well and being happy. Talk to me about that. Why is living well a better way to think about things? Well, so I, so the, the way I think about the distinction is that, you know, happiness is a, 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 an individual state of mind. So philosophers like to illustrate these distinctions with kooky thought experiments. So, you, you know, you imagine the matrix, someone is plugged into a simulation, they don't know it's a simulation, and their stream of consciousness could be delightful. They could be perfectly happy in this ignorant situation. But if they're the only person plugged in and it's completely fake, they're not doing most of what they think they're doing. They're not interacting with any other real people. It's just the machine. It's, they're not really living a good life. You wouldn't sort of, it's not your dream for most of us. It's not our dream for our kids. I hope they get plugged into a simulation and never encounter the real world ever again and never experience love with an actual human being. So I think that kind of thought experiment draws out the contrast between happiness as a state of mind and a kind of engagement with reality that involves treating oneself and other people as one should. And it's sort of a tautology that we should live the way we should. So I, I think that in a way it sort of goes without saying that we should try to live that way, but it's very easy to slip from thinking about how should I live to the question of happiness. And that it, it's not that happiness doesn't matter, but it, it's not the only thing that matters. And if you focus on it exclusively, you, you're really missing out on most of what matters in life. And in fact, you're, you're at risk of sort of subverting your own pursuit. So uh, there's an idea from the philosopher John Stuart Mill that uh, it, actually, if you only pursue your own happiness, that's all you care about. 
actually going to be very hard to find happiness because most of our sources of happiness involve caring about things other than our own happiness, caring about other people, caring about a sports team, caring about philosophy, caring about justice. That kind of engagement is crucial even to finding happiness. So I, I think the right way to think about the relationship is really we're trying to live good lives. And if we're invested in things and we're lucky enough, happiness will be a a byproduct of that, but it's not guaranteed. And if we don't get it, that doesn't mean necessarily that we're doing something terribly wrong with our lives. It might just mean that our circumstances are unfortunate. So if we're doing our best to live well, and I don't know, we're still anxious, we're still depressed, we're still whatever the things that beset humankind, you know, we haven't, we haven't gotten past those things yet, but we're, we're staying in the game of living well how would you say, well, here's something how I would think about things. Obviously, you just said it, but restate it. Like, if those things are still true. I mean, so, I mean, the first thing to say about things like anxiety, depression is, you know, they're often medical conditions. I think I would encourage anyone to do is, is if you're reading a book about, you know, philosophy and the hardships of life and you're like, but I'm really depressed, it's, this book might is it may be that going to your your doctor is like the first thing to do, and then reading the book come comes later. Sure, but I mean the other thing to say is, I, you know, anxiety, depression have an element that is is sort of cognitive. Like there's a way of seeing the world that informs them, and sometimes what you're seeing in the world really is terrible, and in fact not to feel. Uh, anxious or unhappy about it would be to be really missing out on or or, or sort of clouding your perception of reality. That doesn't mean you should necessarily dwell on it. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't think, am I seeing this correctly? Maybe there's some other way to understand what's happening because you might be really making a mistake. But I think actually seeing the world as it really is, is an essential part of living well. And sometimes that's difficult. And so, yeah, I, I do think it's not a sign of dysfunction necessarily to look at the ways in which life is difficult for yourself or for other people and think, uh, I have negative emotions about that. The negative emotions are telling you something and what they're telling you really might be true. I'm tempted to zag to a a punchline, you know, deep into the midlife book. So I might be going to the end in a way we can't get there without going through a lot of steps, but you have a fascinating distinction and if 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 I were to um, cut to kind of fundamental advice, I think you're giving in the midlife book. There's plenty of advice you give along the way on, on many things, but you talk about this distinction between telic and atelic activities. And so this is this is my crude way of saying what you're going to say much clearer, and you'll clarify where I'm wrong. But it's the idea that we can tend to look at life as things to accomplish. It's like a one, you know endless to-do list. I I, I want to get this done. I want to feel this. I want to, you know, I want to succeed in these ways. I want to have, you know, stuff going on with my kids in these ways. I want to do, 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 do. But that that can be short, short-sighted because one, there's a, you know, if we do the thing we were trying to do, there's the classic, is that all there is feeling that we can experience? And, or if we don't succeed, that's bad. But even if we do succeed, it's just one more thing on our, on our to-do list. And so you give advice saying that that would be telic, stuff that has an end point that you finish. And um, 
you th- say, well, those are important, you know, like ending poverty. If we could do that, that would be a telic activity, and boy, that would, wouldn't that ever be worth doing? So you're not dis- you're not discounting that, but you're saying it's short sighted if that's it. And I th- as I am understanding you, and so a big part of your advice is to say, well, think about these atelic activities that when, you know. When we're working on a project, so you said, you know, you're going to finish this book someday that you were working on at the time of midlife, and that'll be sad because it's been a fun project. But on the other hand, the AT-like activity is what you're not going to finish is thinking about philosophy and writing about philosophy and immersing yourself in philosophy. That's that's not going to end. And so we can pull back and look at the the bigger picture when we're parenting and we got to get our kids to bed, a telic activity. On the other hand, we can also say, but I am parenting. That will continue as a parent of many kids. That continues forever. And so you're kind of learning how to parent and that's its own. And there's a, there's a reward in kind of pulling back as best we can along the way in the bigger picture. So two things, one, tell me more about that. And, um, and secondly, one question when I was chatting with people about that, they would say is, okay, is this just saying the same as kind of classic wisdom, which has almost become cliche of focus on the process. It's about the journey, not about the destination. Is it saying exactly that? Is it saying more than that? Talk to me about that bit of advice. Yeah, so I think you explained it perfectly. I mean, right, there's, there's a, a contrast between telic activities, which are project-like, they have an endpoint. And the problem is, you know, you're going to be done with it. But also while you're aiming at it, there's a kind of dissatisfaction. You're not there yet. And what you're doing is taking this thing that's giving structure to your life. And by trying to finish it, it's as if you're trying to you know, kick something important out of your life to extinguish it. And there's something very perverse about that, I think. Whereas these atelic activities that don't have an endpoint built in, you're not exhausting them by engaging them in them. You know, if, if, if what you value is parenting or spending time with friends or having conversations about spirituality, and that's what you're doing, you're not trying to get somewhere else. You know, this is it. It's, it's happening right now. And so I, I do think one way to, to characterize that is uh, about valuing. It's about valuing the process, not project. It's about the journey, not the destination. I think I wouldn't resist the idea at all that that um, formula is exactly what I'm trying to get at. Part of what I think philosophy is contributing here is not, sometimes philosophy says, here's a new idea you've never thought of before. Philosopher comes along and blows your mind. Other times I think what happens is there's a kind of idea floating around, like living in the present, say, and we're, we're like, you should live in the present. What exactly does that mean? And it's subject to misconceptions. Like sometimes people will say, you know, to live in the present, you have to accept that the now is the only thing that's real. And you're like, wow, that seems, I'm not sure I really believe that. Or they'll say, living in the present is about living like there's no tomorrow. And you're like, that seems a little reckless. And I'm part of what philosophy contributes here is to say, no, no, there is a way of thinking about this that we can really make rigorous philosophical sense of. So we can make sense of the idea of living in the present as valuing the process, seeing what's here right now is valuable. And when we say that, uh, there really is something we're picking up on that is the deep distinction between two kinds of activities that uh, we can now understand and we can now use as a kind of tool to go back and as it were, audit our own lives and think, are we too invested in projects? Do we not fully appreciate or sufficiently appreciate the value of the process of these atelic activities? So I think of myself as, as trying to give, as it were, foundations for the, the idea of it's about the, the process, that's what you should value. And, and to connect it back to our earlier discussion about um, you know, what philosophy can do when life is difficult and one is unhappy. This is a point at which I think uh, 
you might discover that the sources of unhappiness don't come from external circumstance necessarily, but from your own relationship to your life. So it might be that I don't have to change anything outwardly in what I'm doing to shift from being obsessed with getting the next paper published or getting a promotion uh, in my job to thinking, no, what actually matters is that I'm thinking about philosophy and talking about philosophy with people. Outwardly, it might look exactly the same to people, but my evaluative orientation will have shifted. And that's a case where I think, yeah, philosophy can really change our sense of satisfaction or appreciation of our own lives. But yeah, I, I, I do think it's very closely related to the, the kind of self-help slogan that you were pointing to. Let's let's look at our respective disciplines for a minute. So, I have uh, I have you know I was a preacher for many years, and now I seem to be this this contemplative spirituality chatter uh, with various people. So, thinking about particularly Christian contemplative tradition, but I've looked at my Thich Hans of the world and the rest. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of I'm tempted to do some compare and contrast. That there's you know if you're doing a Venn diagram, as I understand it, there'd be a hefty amount of overlap between. You know, you doing philosophy and me doing whatever it is I do would be a significant amount of overlap because you're thinking about ultimate things. You're thinking about what matters. You're thinking about how to live life. You're thinking about how to, um, you know, I don't know. And you're you're in a continual conversation with people. At least I am about those questions. You're constantly saying, "Oh, what do you think about that?" Or does that work? Or I don't know. I'm learning this. What are you learning? How does that go? It's a, it's a constant. It's atelic in that sense, in a delightful way that has been nothing but fun for me. On the other hand, there's, it's, not, it's, it's not a complete overlap. There's a significant amount of, you know, areas on the margins. And one, I would think, so I'm just curious about talking about that. So one would be like any religious tradition, you're coming out of a, an embodied set of wisdom, which you're also coming out of. The philosophical tradition is an embodied set of wisdom. But, you know, they're, they're not quite the same. There's the idea in religions like the one I've been in of revelation. You know, you've, you're from on high, Moses gets the, the tablets and or Jesus says his words and they're written down or whatever. Paul theologizes in his way and we are thinking, oh, that's really great. I'm going to work with that. I don't know. What do you see about how our two disciplines interact and how we're kind of, we're on different, on different tracks? And I think I see it very uh, similarly to you in that I, I think there is an enormous overlap. And one thing to say just to sort of big picture is, to, is that what kind of, talking primarily about moral philosophy or ethics or philosophical reflection on how to live or the meaning of the meaning of things. And there's a lot of philosophy that is not really ethics. So people are doing philosophy of physics or epistemology or, and some of that connects with religion or can connect with religion too, but, but we're sort of focusing on a certain part of philosophy. And there, yeah. I think uh, there's a lot of you know, philosophers who have been also religious. There's Aquinas, there's Maimonides, there are, you know, the, they kind of manifest the overlap between the two. If I had to say roughly what makes philosophy distinctive, I would say, or potentially distinctive, is that there philosophy we could think of as uh, using natural reason, not faith or revelation or scripture. And so it might be that the end point is kind of natural theology. We have an argument from design or something, or a cosmological argument that proves the existence of God. And that would be a way philosophy might, a shape philosophy might take. But it's true that very often, uh, if you start by setting aside faith, revelation, scripture, and just using natural reason, there is a there is a tendency in contemporary philosophy for it to end up in a secular framework. So it's just not, it's not religious. 
And then you're faced, I think, though, with many of the same kinds of questions. So how should I live my life? Or how should I feel about the human condition and the, the way in which suffering is part of people's lives or injustice is pervasive? And, and I would say about my own approach to these questions, I am very respectful of the religious impulse in that I, I, there's sometimes a tendency among philosophers, especially atheist philosophers, to, as it were, throw out the questions with the answers to say, um, if you can't give a religious answer to the question, you know, how should I feel about the human condition or what's the place of humanity in the universe, you should just get rid of those questions. Stop asking what's the meaning of life. And th that is very much not my inclination. I think those questions don't go away when uh, religious answers become, for some of us, untenable. The questions remain and philosophy still has to grapple with them. So that's another sense in which I would say I, I do see kind of a lot of continuity there, maybe more than some of my colleagues would. And if you have you found that there's a there's a sense of I don't know of rivalry between the philosophical world and the religious world. I ask because back in the days when I was in Cambridge, my so my um, my background meant atheist. I wrote a book about a transition from atheism to wherever I got, and that got me speaking gigs, and that got me you know somehow I don't know that got me in a lot of rooms. And so one room it got me in. I spent a lot of not a lot of time, three or four significant sessions at Tufts, where I was talking with the atheist club, but I was all, the Christian club and the atheist club, which atheist club kept disbanding, and they had a tough time staying together in my experience. But so be a reformed one. Uh, there was a man who perhaps you've run across named Daniel Dennett, I believe, who was at Tufts at the time and who was pretty hostile towards the religious perspective and kind of famous. Yes. They had, what, the yeah. four horsemen of the apocalypse, him and and uh, other very famous philosophers saying religion is bunk. And so uh, it was fun to be in those rooms because it was feisty and, you know, people – I think the reason the Atheist Club came together was usually to pick a fight It is in a good way. Like, let's have a good conversation about is there – so they were lovely people, so I'm not, I'm not criticizing anything. But – but it was hostile in that perspective. It was, you know, these two things cannot coexist. And even having this conversation, I never felt that way. I love philosophy and I love this sort of stuff. I felt like to a great extent, we are on entirely the same team. And to the degrees we're not on the same team, you know, we don't have to, it's like, so people are different. You know, people find answers in different spaces. What's the problem? But in that, in that era, it was like, that is not an acceptable answer. That was fighting words to say such a thing. Have you found that in the philosophical, philosophical world that they are still competitors with, you know, religion or things like that, or that there's a lot of more easy, like, live and let live? I mean, there are people like Dan Dennett are still around and still pugnacious, and so that, that, that spirit is not entirely gone. But I would say the, the moment you're describing does feel like it's passed in terms of the sort of sociology of the relationship between philosophy and religion. But, but I would go further than that and say, I, I think over the last 10, 15 years, been, there's been quite a lot of work by secular philosophers, philosophers who are not religious, to revive the, the kinds of questions that religious answers and religion answers and say philosophy should continue to grapple with these questions. So I think we're at a moment, uh, in my experience at least, of unusual sympathy and openness and uh, non-antagonism between academic philosophy and not just religion, but sort of spirituality more generally, the kinds of things that, uh, that the, the kind of atmosphere of big questions that surrounds kind of religion, but also um, kind of some new age thinking or 
you know, religions that are not necessarily theistic as well. So I, I, I think that uh, there is a lot of openness right now. In general, I think philosophy is in a state of great openness that can be can feel chaotic, uh, but also has good sides. It's it, it's less doctrinaire, and, and people are much less interested in policing the boundaries and saying what philosophy isn't than they were probably when you were engaging with, with Dennett and others. Well, we're going to come towards our end of conversation and I'm going to raise something that will be rather than like wrapping things up, I'm going to expand things for a second. But so in that spirit, I'm tempted to talk about some of the great insights you talk about in the midlife book. And so for, from a religious point of view, you talk about, well, here's aspects of midlife, you know, as you think about kind of famous aspects of midlife crisis, one aspect is feeling like I missed out. There are all these opportunities I thought I was going to have in life. And now that I look back, I don't seem to have had those opportunities. I said no to things. What was I thinking? I'm an idiot. You know, and uh, on the other hand, you know, I've got good things here. I wouldn't want to throw out the, the gains I have in my life. And so that's part of midlife. Part of midlife, and I realize I'm conflating all these massive topics in one thing. So we'll just schmooze. But part of midlife is thinking, you know, I used to think, yes, I know I'm going to die. But when I was 20, you know, I'm aware I'm going to die. But if I think I'm likely to die at 80, that's like multiple lifetimes in front of me. I'll worry about that later. But when you're, I'm 61, when you're 61, you think 80 doesn't seem that far away. And so you see it a little more in the immediate uh, thing. So that swirl of concerns of, of hitting midlife that can be disquieting or that you're trying to figure out a way, a way through. So from the I realized as I was uh, I first listened to both of your books on audio and then went through and read them just to get a kind of a text to kind of remind me of what was there, and so I I, I have moments I can remember where I was hearing some of that stuff, and so <laughs> I'm driving this way I'm listening to you or listen to your reader on um on audio, and you're talking about like regrets or potential regrets, things you didn't do. And I'm feeling like emotional, like, oh, I got those things. Then you're talking about, on the other hand, you're not throwing out what you did have. You know, you've made actual choices. There's a richness in life and you chose a direction. And I felt that too. And I realized if I look at it from your perspective or the philosophical perspective, the one you're proposing versus a religious perspective, there's different answers being given to that, that feeling, that emotion. And I don't know. I just, I, I wanted to talk about that. So like one, one response, I think, well, in my kind of Christian, you know, Bible reading, preaching side, here's the answer, is that um, regret is, I think, you could argue a sin in the Bible. And it's a sin, I think, for good reason. That's, there's real wisdom in it being a sin. Because what the wisdom would say is, well, there's actual paths taken, and then God's going to be in reality, you know? And so once you've taken an actual path, that's what God's working with. And a, a hypothetical paths God doesn't really do great in working with hypothetical paths that God hypothetically could have given you this hypothetical thing. So it's a sin. So in one sense, when I feel that angst and, you know, oh my gosh, you've tapped into something where I feel loss, the religious answer that I would come up with is, okay, got to take a breath. I've got to live right in this moment. I got to thank God for what I do have and, and try to experience the fullness of life now and the life not lived. I can mourn, but then I can, I got to move forward with, with reality. And so that is how I've often comforted myself. The comfort you were offering was also real, but it was a little different. It was like, well, let's look at where that regret comes from. <laughs> let's look at why we feel that regret. Um, let's look at what it means to have options when you're a kid. You know, you could go all these different directions. You're 17 and you got all these interests. And man, and you talk about your, I guess, your three interests at the time of you could be a doctor, you could be a philosopher, you could be a poet. Those are very different life trajectories with different rewards and different risks. And you took a certain one, but there's, it doesn't mean the other ones are gone. You might have made better decisions. 
So anyway, this is a swirling question of saying, I found myself going on the one hand, on the other hand, wisdom from my tradition, which is, I think, real wisdom of regret's not your best choice because there's what's real and God lives in the real and let's live there. And but but you're saying, but let's give a little space to understanding how we got there. I don't know. Talk to me about in that swirl. Any thoughts? It's very interesting to me because I do think there's a a way in which some of what I'm saying you could think of as a secular version of some of what you might say in this religious idiom. And and it does subtract. I'm not saying the content is the same. Something is subtracted. So you know, think of two ideas that are really important in the. In, in my discussion of this, one is that missing out isn't necessarily the sense that you have lost that you have isn't necessarily a sign of mistakes or that something went wrong. And in fact, the phenomenon of missing out might not be something to regret because it's an inevitable side effect of the fact that there are more things in the world that are of value than any one life can contain. In fact, if you try to imagine what it would be like to live a life without missing out, the only way you could do it would be to impoverish the world or your own response to the world in ways that would be incredibly limiting. Who would want that? Or, or take a second idea that sometimes, even when things have gone wrong, we're capable of rationally attaching ourselves to the particular people and the particular things in our lives that allow us to find a value or, or a meaning that answers the challenge, well, it could have been better some other way. And there's an extra step you could take in either of those cases, which would be to say, um, well, yeah, there's this richness of the world and we should be grateful for it. There's a kind of gratitude to God. Or uh, that was one of the things you mentioned a minute ago, or or that there's a kind of um, attachment to actuality because this is the world God made. Like this is how things are. And the fact that they are this way is, has, is revelatory of something about the God and the way God planned things. So what's some, there's some kind of shift in perspective. And in a way, what's coming clear to me in this conversation is that I'm making arguments that get to that point and then they stop. They say, well, there's attachment, but you can't back it up by saying the actual world is the world as God made it. Or you, there's a kind of sense of the plurality of, of good things in the world, but there's no one to be grateful to for that. But still, there's a certain kind of something like gratitude, but it can't be directed at a, a personal God. And so I, I think um, there are things that are, are, are lost in this sort of secular ways of grappling with these problems. But I'm struck by, the, the, by some similarities, too. And uh, again, I think this sort of fits with my sense that, that the, there's a, a kind of desire among contemporary moral philosophers to try to grapple with questions like, you know, there is this phenomenon of feeling, say, grateful to be alive. You don't have to believe in God to have that phenomenon, but it is a little bit puzzling who exactly you're grateful to. I mean, like the paradigm case of gratitude is gratitude to someone. And if you take out the someone, can we make any sense of a kind of secular gratitude for reality? So I, I think that way of putting the, the the sort of relationship between how you approach these questions and how I'm approaching them brings out that, that there's potential for convergence and then a kind of question mark about about uh, you know what exactly is is left out in the the secular perspective and you know can we live without it? 
that brings me to one of the other big things you talk about, I think, in a great way in the midlife book about the the other thing I mentioned, impending death as we get to midlife. Yeah. So I thought about that as on the one hand, on the other hand, too. And so I thought as, as I was hearing, you know, several arguments for how to think about the fact that, you know, should we feel like, oh, my gosh, she used to feel like death was so distant, I didn't really have to worry about it. But now it's like I can see it. And, you know, my parents are... One is dead, one is, you know, older, and my wife's parents are really struggling. And so it's only one generation away, and I see what they're going through, and I think that's going to be me in a generation. And, you know, my kids are going to be asking what I'm now asking about, and my wife is asking about her parents. Oh, my gosh. So we have that just existential question because we have eyes, you know, we can see what's happening, et cetera. And so I'm thinking, well, there's sort of superficial religious answers to that angst. There's, There's like woo-woo cosmic religious answers to that angst, and they're sort of philosophical answers to that angst. And I kind of wonder what the interplay is. So I thought, well, the most basic Christian answer to that angst is, here's the good news, you're going to go to heaven. So, you know, stick with Jesus. Don't worry about death. It's just a, it's a portal. It's a door that opens to something. You're going to love it. It's great. That other door is fantastic. So don't sweat it. Then there's, uh, I was hearing somebody, like the great Christian mystics often go a lot further than that. And they start asking like, very existential questions, which one recent guy put together. I'm not sure I can quote the Christian mystic who would say it, but it's not It's not for him. It's like, well, think about it this way. Maybe consciousness is eternal. And maybe when, you, um, when you're born, you kind of tap into the consciousness that you then have. And then when you die, you, you lose the earthly form, but the consciousness doesn't go anywhere. So that's sort of heaven is like, is like who you are, which could be the soul, right? That consciousness, it, it continues and you have a little portal here, but consciousness doesn't go anywhere. And so I think, oh, it's kind of comforting. I guess maybe that's what I'm tapped into. But then what you were saying, as I understood you, which I also loved, I thought, well, what you're saying is, I'm imagining an imaginary dialogue you would have with what I've just said, and you give me the actual dialogue, which is something like, be all that as it may, great stuff. I, they could be true. That's beyond my ken to even know if those things are true. But, you know, I can understand how those would be very comforting or very interesting or, you know, you go. That said, let's talk about what I can talk about. And... um well, you talk about our perspectives about that emotion. And so you have perspectives like, well, you know, some people would say before you were born, so far as you're aware, there was just nothing and you're not all grieving that, you know? And so, you know, it, maybe it's just the same, in which case, why, why grieve it? So in one sense, it's change your attitude because, you know, dial down and, or, or you say, you know, when you think about like, immortality is usually a dystopia when when novelists write about immortality or things like that. It's never good. And so do you really want a dystopia? You don't want a dystopia. And so that means you've got to accept like, you know, you're going to die. And, or maybe you could look at it like it's not a superpower. Like if you could fly, wouldn't that be fun? Flying would be fun, but you can't, you don't grieve not flying and immortality. No one else has ever done it. It's a superpower. And so you don't grieve. So it's like always you're providing ways to like dial down about how bad death feels. I don't know. Again, another swirl. How do you see those things interacting? But this is a case where I think the, I think that the secular constellations for death are, are very limited. Like I, I, I myself am very frightened of dying and no, no amount of the perspective shifting has really worked for me. And I, I do think that that's a, the kind of metaphysical answers like the ones you described that I don't think we can really simulate in, in secular, non-mystical, non-metaphysical terms. I mean, I think the, the idea that I, I'm most tempted by of the ones that, that um, I talk about in the book and that you just, just beautifully sketched 
is this idea that um, uh, that if you really take in uh, the kind of atheistic picture on which uh, immortality is not on the cards any more than growing wings and flying is on the cards, you ideally could get to a position where not being able to live forever does just feel like, well, like I also can't fly. Like it's, it's, it will be cool, but it's, it's not a terrible insult to my, to my dignity that I can't do this. I find it very hard to get to that point. In a way, I think the other kind of argument that's very, that moves me is if you're, and this is very flat footed, but, but I think right is if you're thinking of eternal life on earth, like, just not dying, maintaining your physical form, the way there are people now who are doing these anti-aging treatments and want to live to 200. There's a certain way in which uh, it, you gotta, we have to leave, we have to make room for the next generation. Like it, it's one thing for uh, billions of us to live in heaven. We're not, you know, overcrowding the earth, but there's a way in which if, if we're trying to actually just extend physical life, uh, we're not, accepting with the kind of humility of thinking, yeah, we had our time and we need to make space for other people. And th there's a kind of moral argument for accepting our mortality that also I think doesn't exactly reconcile me to mortality, but I think is right. I think it's true that, that I will have had my time and it will be someone else's time to inhabit the limited space and the limited resources that, that we have on earth, like the, the limits of which are, are more vivid now than, than they've ever been. Okay, I'm going to forcefully stop myself from continuing this conversation because I'm going to let it okay. go. It's like death. I want to keep talking, yeah. <laughs> but I've got to just reconcile myself. The conversation cannot be infinite, and um, that's not a, the superpower we're not going to get. So maybe I'm just going to thank you. What a great conversation. And again, thanks so much for your great work, and thanks for putting it out in the world. I was just... Uh, I just did a podcast on this guy Meister Eckhart, this great mystic from and uh, from the 1300s. And one thing he says is, it's every human's obligation to take what God has put in you and to give it out. You can't if you hold on to it, you're sinning. And I feel like you're living it out. You know, you're living philosophy. You're that Meister Eckhartian person who is giving out, and I and our listeners are the beneficiaries. So we're grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And um, anyway, thanks to Dr. Setchi. It was great to have him here. All right, we'll look forward to talking to you again in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs>